Do you ever find yourself getting lost in relationships, focusing so much on caretaking others, making sure others are happy that you can't find your own sense of self and well-being? Well, if so, this episode is for you. This is a bonus episode that is in support of 30-day challenges out there, 30-day emotional health challenges. Don't worry if you haven't been part of the challenge. You can either jump in right now or just this episode will be applicable to all. You may not have heard of the concept of fawning, but today's episode is about fawning, which is a trauma-based response that can be powerfully influential over our adult relationships, especially if we're not aware of it. So before we jump in, we've got some exciting news for our Patreon members. We're doing a live community meeting on March 6th. So we look forward to seeing all of our Patreon members there. If you haven't had a chance to join and you've been considering it, now's the time. We would love to have you be part of our Nerd Nerd community. Go to patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored and your gift there would not only bring you into this wonderful community, but would really help support us. All right, well, let's jump in. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. This is a podcast that breaks down interpersonal science into practical and understandable tidbits. And as you listen, I can just imagine little light bulbs of insight appearing above your head. You're going to be surprised and touched at what you learn about yourself as you get more accurate and in-depth view of your mind and your heart and as you figure out those close to you. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Welcome back, everybody. This is, again, another bonus little episode from Ann Kelly and myself, Sue Marriott, supporting those of you that are working on your 30-day emotional health challenge. A lot of people will identify a challenge related to the concept of being codependent. I hate that word, by the way. I, I, <laughs> I have to agree with you. I mean, the one thing I like about it is people seem to understand the concept, and it's an important one. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. I have this visceral like about that word. <laughs> well, what is it about that word? I mean, I kind of agree with you, but now I'm curious. <laughs> you know, this goes back to me being in the field for a long time, but you know, it was so popular for a while and it became this go-to word related to relationality and women in particular. So I just, it's a part of me that's like, it's very easy to pathologize caretaking or ways that we've been socialized to connect, particularly as women, but not only, and then having somebody else stand back and call that, you know, if we do our job really well, then we're called codependent. I don't know. And the other thing is, it's like, you know, some of it was, you know, 97% of people are codependent and the other 3% are in denial or, you know, stuff like that, that it's like, what is, how is that even meaningful? So I'm sorry. I don't mean to go off on that crazy tangent. I think what you're saying though, is a, you feel like it can be overused and oversimplified and in some ways shaming, right? Like you're codependent. There's something about that that is actually a little shaming of being connected and relational. It can sound that way. Well, yeah, I think it even can be used that way. Right. But But that's not how you brought it up. You were bringing it up around this interesting new idea around that. Yeah. And I'm also, I also want to say that I think there has been just to not completely 
defend the word, but the, those individuals that have had some relief learning about it. Yeah, I think that's true. And have really grown and have groups around it where people who felt really bad if they were taking care of themselves and feeling really horrible and feeling really like selfish and to get out there and to get empowered by the word. And many people have developed some empowerment about the idea that one can live too much on the experience of being there for other people. So I think this new word you're going to like a little bit more that's related, and that is the idea of fawning. So Peter Walker is the person who coined the term fawning. He is a clinician that has worked and written quite a bit on CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's trauma basically that isn't just one event that happens, but more of like the drip factor, you know? Like an example would be chronic neglect, emotional, maybe abusiveness, the effects on the body as it stays over time. And then if you think about it, when something's chronic, our entire body has to adjust to that experience. It's not a one-time experience, so your entire body ends up in the way of being adjust to incorporate that experience. So one of the reasons that we wanted to bring this idea in, this concept of fawning, what I love about it is it ties people-pleasing and compulsive caretaking and some of the things that are actually more trauma-based. And before we've talked about implicit learnings and implicit adaptations that helped keep us safe. Well, what he's bringing into mind is the idea that an outcome of trauma can be complicit caretaking, so much so that the person loses themselves, can get in very dangerous relationships. And it's one of those things that the closer you get to someone, as you get more attached, then you're more likely to lose yourself. Like it's a lot harder than to set a boundary or to express disagreement or to differentiate because your attachment system is activated now with that person. Right. And for those of you that just even when you hear the word set a boundary, that it creates anxiety. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You have this, you you feel that is something that's negative and rejecting or that somebody else is something to listen to. And what I like about the use of fawning is that we are bringing it down to a implicit body response. And I think that's less shaming. It's not just a choice being made to over caretake and care for others needs. It's really created out of this fear fear of, if I don't, I'm not going to have a sense of attachment. I'm going to be alone. I will be lost, especially often people who have had a parent that might be narcissistic invites a kind of fawning response. If you don't, in fact, mirror the needs of a parent, you would feel this implicit experience of either a rage response or a rejected response. So for infant and young children to learn that, to stand separate from that parent is going to create an implicit anxious response. You are going to develop a style that learns to adapt to that. And we've heard of this, you know, over time, like role reversal in childhood. Like one of the signs actually of disorganization in kids is a really strong role reversal where the child is the one setting the boundaries for the parent and the child is the one even reprimanding the parent, running the schedule, things like that. And that's an example of how it flips where the, the child is not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about the adults in their environment and then managing them in order to keep themselves safe, which is not at all what a child should have to do. 
So that's probably a precursor to fawning. One of the things we wanted to point out about this is that this isn't a Steve Porges, polyvagal, necessarily a neuroscience validated word. This is more in the clinical realm. This is a therapist who has found this description to be helpful to his patients, which is different than some of the things we talk about, which are sort of more specifically neuroscience-based, like the vagus nerve and even fight-flight-freeze, which has been validated and is absolutely physiologically what's happening. But people are beginning to talk about, and we've even mentioned it, fight-flight freeze, collapse, faint, fawn, like these are all other words that our nervous system does do related to keeping us safe. But I just want to make the distinction between this is a clinical concept right now that I'm aware of. And if I'm wrong about that, I would love to hear from you. Well, and maybe even getting more in depth about what the concept is of fawning, you know, fawning, an aspect of that is an experience of merging with someone else. We're merging with somebody else's wishes, needs, and desires at the cost of one's own. And often without even the recognition of one's own, an expression could be, I'm happy when everybody else is happy. But what makes you happy? What makes me happy is when everybody else is happy, right? So that can be an expression, but it's an aspect and it's something that I can relate to, something about my personal challenge. You know, when I know everybody else is experiencing a great movie, I'm going to have a good time. But I do draw the limits on animations. <laughs> I was I was going to think about horror, horror oh, movies. Yes, yes. I don't care how happy anyone else in my family is. I'm not doing a horror movie. So that element of fawning is, you know, somebody that can merge with others' wishes. But it can happen to this deep. We all can do this, right? It's not... Like yeah, because there's a socialization piece about this. Yes, it can be a real strength. But when it is related to severe trauma, it's the intense, overwhelming feeling inside oneself if they do stand separate that is a really important part of this. Yeah, that it's, it's not a choice. Right. And I'm curious, like since you were identifying some with on the losing yourself, and I, you gave in a previous episode a great example of you not doing that and feeling really good about it mm-hmm. in a particular social setting. Does this feel like that this fits for you related to the trauma piece, to the compulsive piece? Or you know what I'm saying? Probably. If I stop to think about it, yes. Thinking about the experience, I think in a previous episode, you know, sort of the fear of seeing, you know, sort of single mom in a panic about finances. I can really relate to sort of being with my mom in a panic state and really feeling my need to want to help her not be panicked, want to help her feel okay. Because of course, as a child, when your parents panicked and it's the only, you know, that's a really scary experience. So the idea of stomping my feet and say, I don't care how you feel, I'm doing A, B, and C, probably wasn't as much of an access back then to me. (laughs) 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 Probably wasn't. (laughs) Wasn't so much. So can we, can we say it was completely inaccessible <laughs> and you could you would have it would have been terrifying to do it or <laughs> <laughs> So so coming back and like being able to and for me it, it wasn't solving the financial crisis that was my brothers and siblings but it was helping my mom come out of a, a scared state that that would became my talent, not a coincidence. I became a psychologist, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but helping my mom coming out of a scared state, 
was something that was a real priority in my body for survival and then became something that I really identified with. So do you imagine then that this clinical term fawning and tying the caregiving that you're struggling with now more to your history or more to trauma, do you find that that could be useful for you? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think especially recognizing the implicit feelings. I mean, don't get me wrong. It feels great to be able to be there with somebody and help them through emotional crisis or to be the one people turn to. And so that can be very self-fulfilling and you could forget that there's something missing in that element because it's so self-rewarding, right? And I didn't, I don't necessarily run around, experience it like, oh, nobody's taking care of me. I don't experience that. I have great friends and people are very loving. But to recognize the implicit experience of panic that might come in that I might not otherwise recognize, because it's a subtle feeling for me. It's so subtle, I might not even recognize it. So to be able to recognize that somebody else's struggling and that I can sit next to that person. Again, it doesn't happen to me in the therapy hour because it's so separate, but somebody I love and wanting to just be there about their struggle rather than also being in myself with them in that struggle. It's just, it's a, it's important part of recognizing self-awareness and how that implicit things can be so subtle in your body if you don't really attend to it. There's a distinction between at times kind of performing a social script or a role that we've identified with around people pleasing or caretaking or, you know, things that are kind and generous, but then being able to differentiate that from being triggered and where that it's coming from more fear and a more panic state, that those are two different things. And so maybe some of this is like getting more clear about the separateness so that it's not that you have to become a mean person or an aggressive person <laughs> in order to resolve this. It's more really being able to distinguish where you're coming from when you have an urge to act. That's how I would say it. I like that. And honestly, that's slowing down. Literally, the aspect of slowing down, not being necessarily in that unconscious panic that I might not even recognize it, just slowing down a little bit helps me be with that person and myself rather than feeling the gratification of being with the other person, which is really easy to feel, but also staying in tune to myself. And so it's just a subtle little shift in slowing down, but makes a big difference. So one of the things that you're highlighting about this, so anybody that can identify some with this idea of fawning, obviously this is kind of more on the red side, preoccupied side, anxious side. So one of the things you're identifying in is we've talked about this earlier and you're kind of mentioning it now, but it's like being able to stay in touch with your own personal values Mm -hmm. so that the needs that are across from you don't become primary that you're able to hold on to and even know what your values are. Right. You've spoken more at length about that before, but Mm -hmm. I feel like sort of highlighting for those of you that are struggling, it's like, so the space that you're talking about in this time that you're taking is a way to like hold on to like, hold on, what do I think and feel? You know, values can be a loaded word, but you know, really like, what am I wanting to do with this? What, what serves me? Right. So one of the reasons why when we speak about mindfulness so much on this podcast, mindfulness and meditation, literally that's the pause. Literally, it's amazing how much a pause in our experience about things, even before we react to somebody or just taking a moment of pause in internal connection. 
it's an internal connection to self that then allows us to connect to another and exist. If, if you're around somebody who is too caretaking, and we probably have all had that experience where somebody is caretaking and caretaking and about the other person and about the other person, it's an interesting experience if you're around that because you almost want to push them back, right? It's, it actually brings up some feelings. Aggression. Right. So if somebody is so extreme in the fawning, department that they don't know it, they actually can unfortunately elicit aggression in other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and part of that is because they've cut off their own sense of aggression. Yes. That they're not aware of their own needs. Maybe their need is for you to be happy or you to need them or But it's not the person who we're helping. It's not their need to be taken care of. It's my need to feel like I'm taking care of you. You know what I mean? Yes. It's my need either to feel needed or to so it's actually a selfish, aggressive act. And I say this again with love. I'm just, we're just trying to pull it apart that like, let's say when I'm actually triggered, not just when I'm being kind, but when I'm triggered and doing something out of an implicit fear and it's more compulsive, that really what's happening is my need to not feel those feelings become primary over what the other person needs. And so at times we could, if we keep giving them that, it can actually disable the other person. I'm thinking of a parent and a child, for example, or a parent and an adult child in particular, or even couples, that if we're giving, 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 it really teaches the other person to sit back and to like, wait for it, not to express their own needs, not to be able to differentiate, not to, you know what I'm saying? So I like thinking of aggression because it can be aggressive. Again, aggressive, we don't see as bad. It's like a life force helping us get what we want. I'm thinking of the aggression seminar that we attended where Patty Allwell. Yeah, former therapist, uncensored co-host. Yes, reminded us that aggression is about getting, being aware of and getting your needs met. You know, we think about aggression in the terms of sort of an act of violence. And so it tunes that into a different thing. The act of getting one's own needs met means you have to know what your needs are. And then the act of connection and what other people's needs are. And now we have, then that's what you're saying with mother-child. If your need to be a mother is to serve and be a great mother and you're getting all the needs met for the child, it's really about your could be is unconscious need to be a good mother. Totally. And that's why I'm calling it selfish. Again, that's not with criticism. It's just naming the truth. Like it's about, it's about it. ourself. It's not actually about the other person. Well, you know, it's so interesting. You call it selfish and I get that. I think often it feels selfless. Right. I don't have a need and you do. And so it's selfless. But one of the things I like to mention about selfless is if you really separate it, it's selfless. Right? Like there is no self. Right. That's where it becomes kind of aggressive because I'm going to lose myself, quote, for you, which kind of means then that you're responsible for me because now I have no self. And the kids can feel that. Yes. Right? They can feel that I need to be this good kid because my mom or my dad's put so much into me. So the idea of, I think you're a good example one time. This is a silly one, but it's like your child saying, I'm cold. And the mom jumping up and grabbing a blanket. And the, you know, we're not talking about a four-year-old. We're talking about an eight-year-old, you know, instead of the child saying, mom, could you hand me the blanket? You know, where the child's identifying their need and then making a request rather than anything the child mentions, it becomes the act of somebody else's need. And part of what this then can tune us into. So for those of you that are identifying with this, it would be helpful for you to begin to pay attention to how you ask for your needs to be met and also begin to study how other people ask for their needs to be met. It gets really interesting. So your example that you had the other week about your 
experience with the show. So shorthand, I was at a show. For those that didn't hear the other episode, I was at a show where it was incredibly wonderful and emotional. And my friend was having an experience of crying and feeling very intense. And I was able to be with her and her experience, but really also tuned into myself and what vivacious feelings I was having. Right. So then if we go and examine that a little bit more with this question of how do we express our needs, that the old model would have been that the crying inside, I think, that the crying was, you should take care of me. The crying would have been interpreted as a bid for come take care of me now. Which it wasn't at all, Which right? It, but right. In this case, it wasn't at all. It was them being in their own experience and you being in your own experience. And I will add that she was in her own experience, but she did want to share it. I mean, like it wasn't like over there to the left, she's having her own experience and I'm having, she was sharing it with me in the emotional place, but she wasn't asking for me to caretake. And if I wasn't aware of myself, I would have thought, oh my God, you know, and it wasn't that at all. It was a shared experience. The other one we want to tell everybody, and this is important, is we all want people to read our minds and we all want people to get it right. And we don't want to have to say what we need. We want people to just know and get it right every time. But in this world... Is that bad? (laughs) Bad news. In other words, in this world of adults, we have to always say what we want and need. And we hear this all the time. Well, you should know. If you love me, you would know. And we are calling that out. It's like we get the feeling, we have the feeling even, but we have to use our words as we teach our kids. As adults, we have to use our words. We have to teach people how to treat us. I say paint by numbers, make it explicit and make it clear. And that way, if you're asking all the time for something, it's not a demand. If you never ask for anything, it becomes a demand when you finally say something. And then it feels really hurtful when the person doesn't do it. Right. And you have to stop and say, what is it that I do need? And that sometimes can be a big challenge in and of itself. That's right. So be explicit. Right. But I am going to do a little shout out to the blues out there. (laughs) And we, I do believe everything you're saying. Uh, My ears are wide open. (laughs) (laughs) It is. You need to ask for what you want to say it. But that isn't the message to the blues to not (laughs) tune in and say, but you didn't say it. You didn't ask. (laughs) Because... We are also each other's resources. And so it is also just as important to say, hey, how are you doing? Are you getting your needs met? You know, tuning in, asking is also very important. It's a fantastic, <laughs> it's a funny point, but it's also totally fantastic. And what's really cool, Anne, is that we're being so consistent because what we talk about when we talk about the red, which again is on the more preoccupied, anxious side, or it's when any of us are in a state of where that we're more anxious that what happens is we tend to get more externally focused and it feels like our needs are obvious. And then when they're not being met, that somebody's doing something to us. That's kind of a rough example on the red. But when you're in the blue, the opposite happens, which is that we're more cut off interpersonally. And so we know what we're thinking and feeling really easy. (laughs) And we make the assumption that the other person, if they want it, they're going to ask for it. Well, actually, hang on, correction, because I can hear people going like, wait a minute, we don't always... So on the blue side, actually, it is true. We can be really cut off from our bodies and not be having an emotional experience of ourself to be a little more nuanced. But as far as like being able to say, I want Chinese or I want mm-hmm. mm, good Tex-Mex or whatever that is, 
That's typically easier. So on the blue side, we always encourage exactly what Anne's saying now, which is to tune into the other person. It's like, okay, yeah, you want Tex-Mex, but what do they want? It might not be as easy for them to say what they want. It doesn't mean they don't have an opinion. It might just mean that you always are the one that leads, and so they are just naturally following. So if you're out there listening and you recognize your partner or your friend always says, sure, sure, that'd be great, whatever you want, that might be a sign not to get angry and say, and that can be a temptation. I see that a lot in couples get angry. It's like, God, why don't you ever make a decision? And now remember when we activate anger and shame in somebody, that isn't the time that they're going to be able to take on their biggest challenges and say, Hey, we always go where I want slow down. And I want you to name two places that you would really want to go to, you know, like, help them help them and tune into them and you know what they might not be able to right away because it'll be like uh i don't know because that's part of the point that's part of the adaptation is to kind of blend in and so it can feel a little threatening so then you can say things like okay well i'll pick this time but i want next time you know for next week i want to do something with you but take your time and i want you to really pick it and i'm gonna love it no matter where it is like you really help them be able to claim themselves which takes us back to fawning which is our topic today of this is part of what's hard is making a decision being able to kind of put your stake in the ground and say this is who i am this is where i am being able to differentiate our whole conversation today has been really kind of weaving in and out about from that perspective, ways to dig in and kind of be three-dimensional and have yourself. One other tip I wanted to mention was to let your close people, let your community around you, people who know you, let them know that you're struggling with this. Because again, we can't do this by ourselves. So if we can, in our group of friends, say, you guys, I'm, I'm so compliant. You know, I'd learned this concept of fawning or whatever. You use your own language. But when you're not thinking about it, it's held in the group, it's held in your with your partner or whoever is close to you, that, that they can then help you with it. So you basically get a social support team to help you on your journey to emotional security. I like that. I think that's a really important aspect is to ask for help with it and to recognize it and not to be ashamed by it and to recognize it's a body. It's a body thing. It's not just a decision thing that if you find yourself Again, with fawning, giving up your needs, having a really hard time knowing what your needs are and mirroring or really being centered on what other people need. Go deeper on this topic. And one way you can do that, if you aren't already signed up for the challenge, again, you can join at any moment, even though we're all going, there's one group of us going through this together. It's designed that whenever you sign up for the email chain, it's just four emails. That's all it is. There's no gimmick. There's no trick. It's just to support you and really trying to change, to effectively make a change, even a small change in your life. So that is at therapistuncensored.com backslash challenge. And we are having a communication on this on our Facebook group, which is the private Facebook group. You just look for us, just search for Therapist Uncensored on Facebook, and you'll see the private group connected to that group. You just put 30-day challenge in there and you can pop right in. And you get to start your 30-day challenge anytime That's you want. Right. It does not need to have been started with us as a group. So just consider your 30-day challenge the minute you pop on and take it. And for those of you who are doing it with us, so you'll be getting these emails. So I would just want to point you back to the emails, which is the last one. Well, I'm not exactly sure when this one's going to go, but the second email, I think, in the series has a bunch of mindfulness apps. So that's just one little resource in there I wanted to call out that if you aren't already, we talk about journaling, but we also talk about mindfulness. And we've talked about that a lot on this podcast, but in particular, 
that's a hack. And that's going to help probably most goals, the more that we can practice controlling where our mind goes. And your mind is a muscle. And this is a really, really impactful way to begin to regulate your nervous system. So you might pay attention to that particular email. Lots of the apps are free. And again, it doesn't have to be an app. There's lots of ways to do mindfulness meditations. But just wanted to mention that particular little trick that we're hoping people are journaling, hoping people are at least exploring mindfulness meditation or some sort of mindfulness practice. And I think that's good for today. I think that's good for today. want to encourage you guys, if you are enjoying this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you could get on and rate and review us. We get so many wonderful reviews, and it really means a lot to us. And we read every one of them, by the way. Yes, we do. And uh, we can't respond because they're on these podcast platforms where we can't reach you back. But anybody who's left one, we get together and we read them, and it's super cool. So thank you, thank you. And it really actually helps us out also to, on yeah, our platform. Yeah, guests take a look at it and it gets, helps us get cool guests. So, And I want to do a big shout out to our Patreon members. Thank you so much for supporting us. And if any of you out there feel like you can contribute even as little as $5 a month to help us continue to produce this podcast, we'd so appreciate it. Go to patreon.com backslash therapist uncensored. You could also be part of our very vivacious Patreon community and Facebook group. And anyway... Yeah, and just last thing about, yeah, thank you. And last thing on that is that I know when we run into you guys and meet you, a lot of you say that you refer people to the show. And if you're, especially if you're a professional and you're using this for some of your trainees or your students or your clients, family members, family members, anything like that, that that would be awesome to become a patron. It gets you more access to us and really can help steer the show. All right. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.